were led out to be executed for him. When they came to the, a place called the Skull, they named, nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. The other criminal protested, Don't you fear God, fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in, in paradise. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three, three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands, and with those words, he breathed his last. Let's pray. Lord, it wasn't easy for you to bear the cross. And yet, it's the most beautiful moment of history. The moment that you stepped down and injected humanity with love. Lord, let that sink into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the core of our faith. There's a lot of necklaces out there with this on it, right? We think of it as something that's adorning to hang on a necklace. Yet for the Romans, this was the electric chair. And they didn't walk around with electric chairs hung around their neck. And there was no beauty to that. And as we evaluate this cross, the symbol that's core to our faith, it's as simple as Jesus loves you. And yet, that phrase there, like a diamond, is beautiful at so many different angles, isn't it? I was looking at my systematic theology textbook in my office, thick book, trying to explain this, right? And that doesn't even do it justice. There's so much beauty 
This is the crown jewel of the Christian faith. And we come to faith when we first realize this. And yet we're told in Scripture never to move on from that. To keep our eyes fixed on what? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Romans is a great passage that mentions that God demonstrates his love toward us. How? In this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's from Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 3 says that it is the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. I think for most people, including myself, the message of Christianity and morality, it wasn't the morals of Christians that brought me to my knees. It wasn't even a ticket to heaven that brought me to my knees. But it was when I considered that God took my place and that kindness demonstrated to me that is what brought me to my knees in repentance. That is what brings the church to our knees in repentance. And that is what brings the church to its knees in praise for all time and all eternity to look at this beautiful diamond. And so let's do that today, will you? Look at this beautiful diamond with me from this passage. And we're going to look at seven ways, seven different shimmers of light in the diamond that the passage today exudes. So let's look at the first one. It mentions here that Jesus was crucified with a criminal on his left and on his right. And so where was the cross as Luke sets the stage of this unfolding drama? Right in the middle. Central. And I don't know if that's the intent of Luke to make that point, but I'm going to make it here because the rest of Scripture makes the point that the cross is central. The centrality of the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul mentions, I didn't come and sell this to you. I didn't come with eloquent speeches and lofty wisdom, but I sought to know nothing among you except this, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the focus the Scripture presents for our faith. Colossians mentions the cross. And it is so beautiful. Mentions what this did. It made peace for us and reconciled all things through His blood. It canceled our debts as it was nailed to the cross. And it disarmed all evil triumphing over them right here. So the centrality of the cross is a big deal. The Romans didn't put just anyone up on a cross. It was actually illegal for a Roman to be put on a cross, a Roman citizen. It was meant 
for those that a statement needed to be made of. And they would nail a sign with a charge up here, and they would put it at a busy highway. This was meant to be seen and observed. And yet, in the irony of God's plan, instead of warning people to follow Jesus, we look at it now as a reminder to follow Jesus. Let's look at another one from the next verses. As a good Baptist preacher, all these start with the word see. So if you want to write these down and then add to it, because there's more than seven aspects to the cross. I even felt that this morning. I'm like, I'm going to get up here and try and explain the cross to Jesus. Will I do it justice? I can only go so far. But if you let this grip you, you stay on that journey evaluating what this crown jewel means, then I've done my job. I get the point at the diamond. <laughs> I encourage you to take it with you. So this next one is the compassion of the cross. This is the next verse in the narrative. Jesus opens his mouth for the first time in a while. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That encompasses the nature of what he is doing there, isn't it? He's bringing forgiveness. This was Passover weekend when the nation of Israel would slaughter the lamb and shed its blood back from the story of Moses we had looked back in the fall. And that blood of the lamb covered the people, doorposts, and the wrath of God passed over. It was on Passover that forgiveness was being made. So Jesus was fulfilling Passover. Jesus was also fulfilling what he taught on the Sermon of the Mount back in chapter 6 when he says, pray for your enemies. Right here, Jesus prays for his enemies, saying, Father, bring them forgiveness, for they don't know what they're doing with their lives. How our culture doesn't know what it's doing with their lives. In the heart of Christ is to cry out and say, Father, forgive them. That's different than Jonah who stood on a hill and said, Father, smite Nineveh. <laughs> Jesus says, Father, bring them forgiveness. Amen. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 35. We've looked at the centrality of the cross, the compassion of the cross. Now the contention of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. And yet here, the crowd and the leaders, they scoffed and said, He saved others, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And they're not the only ones who say it. 
The next verse, the soldiers say the same thing, saying if he really is the king, if he really claims to reign, then let him reign in this situation. They see him suffering and they conclude he's not king. And the third person is one of the criminals on the cross who also says the same thing, saying, Jesus, save yourself and us while you're at it. So three times in a row, they're scoffing at the man. And yet, ironically, he is doing exactly that which they mock him for. He is saving himself. He is king, and he will save others. When you talk to people about your faith, this cross is where to focus your conversation. Not necessarily how did Noah build the ark, all right? Though that's, that's part of it, all right? Apologetics, we look through the scripture and look at how it all happens. But there is no other name by which we must be saved than Jesus. And so as you talk to people and as you search your own heart, the question is, who is Jesus, right? Make that the source of contention because that's the source of salvation. If someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian too. So, well, who is Jesus? He's a good dude. That's it. Well, then you're not a Christian, right? You're not a Christian. You're not a prophet, okay? He's the king. He is God incarnate. And so as you talk to people, focus on that. Who is he? And make them answer it. Don't let them off the hook when they say, I don't know. Don't let them off the hook on that. And they'll, you'll see people squirm. They don't want to answer it. Say, well, I want to talk about something else. You squirm out of that question. Make them answer it. You've got to walk around with this on your back for people to say, what's that all about? Then do it. But make that the source of conversation. All right? Because that is what they've got to wrestle with if they're going to find God. So, fourth one. Let's move along here. It's the criminality of the cross. In these words, the second criminal he speaks a different tune and he says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? He says, we deserve to die for our crimes. This man has done nothing wrong. This is the third person to declare Jesus innocent. The first was Pilate. The second was Herod. Now this man declares him innocent. Yet Pilate and Herod, they didn't see that they were guilty in any way. This man does. He says, we deserve to die. This man accepts his sin as a sinner. 
as Dave shared earlier, we're depraved. We need help. We're dead men and women walking without the life of Christ. And so he sees his sin, and then he sees the innocent and holiness of Jesus. And the length of that gap is a big question for why. And the answer to the length of that gap is because Jesus loves you. Jesus never ran from the cross. This man saw that. He leaned right into it. And this criminal on the cross, probably hitting rock bottom, is seeing Jesus for who he is. If we go to the next slide here, we see the connection then that he makes with Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nobody reigns over a kingdom except a king. This man is seeing Jesus clearly. He doesn't mock him, but he really does see that Jesus is in control of the situation, that he is willingly nailed to a cross, and that the reason is out of love. He is taking another's place. And so, refreshingly, he cries out to Jesus, saying, Remember me, Jesus. And Jesus honors that. He says, Today you will be with me in paradise. It's never too late to make that connection. This next week, we're going to do an indoor baptism. The following week, we're going to do an outdoor baptism. Very likely, we might do another baptism the week after that. We have three people interested, and they're looking at their dates. So we might have a month of baptisms here. <laughs> Amen. Publicly demonstrating how Jesus was buried in the ground as we were dead in our sin, and yet came out of that ground to new life. The thing I'll note here too is that this man not only saw Jesus as a Savior and forgiveness, but he did see him as king to make that comment about the kingdom. And that's why at baptism we're going to say, have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The connotations of Lord is that you want to follow him the rest of your days. This Savior doesn't syncretize with your sinful lifestyle. Okay, You're not going to say, hey, I want Jesus, but not as King, just as Savior. It doesn't work like that. The truth is what the truth is. And so you have to accept Jesus on his terms of who he is. And so if God stirs in your heart over the next three weeks, you can join in on any of those. To say, yeah, I want to declare publicly to this church that inwardly I have made that decision of surrender to say, yes, Jesus, like the criminal on the cross, I'm looking over my shoulder, seeing you taking my place and saying, yes, you are Jesus, Lord and Savior.
So the, the cross brings connection. What else does the cross bring in this passage? It brings consuming wrath upon the Son of God. And so darkness covers the land. At noon, it's usually when it shines the brightest in the sky, the sun, doesn't it? And yet darkness covers the land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. Now in our culture, we'd start immediately saying, well, what's happening? Was that an eclipse? You know, what's the scientific explanation? Back then, okay, in a, in a religion with pagan gods, they're thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Another gospel adds that there's earthquakes and rocks begin to shatter, okay? It says that the soldiers that are crucifying Jesus are now suddenly terrified. They're feeling in the hot seat because they're putting God on a cross. From him and in him, all things hold together. From him, creation was made, as Colossians 1 points out. And the imagery of darkness we see throughout the Bible is one of judgment. And I think the most difficult thing for the cross of Jesus that we need to understand is that during this time, all the sin of all history, all the judgment, all the wrath, as God has watched all of history from beginning to end to see brother hitting brother and sister fighting sister, people innocent, people suffering from sin, his righteous anger and justice, just as they would put a hand on the lamb before they would sacrifice it to symbolize the transference of guilt, God was filling up in one man's flesh the sin of all time. in order to crush it and put it away. That's why the Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet we often don't believe that. We often believe, no, I deserve condemnation. No, I deserve wrath right now. Something bad happens in our day, go, yep, that was probably the hammer dropping on me. Now, it's true that God disciplines those he loves to steer us in a better way. But that's discipline. And discipline is different than wrath. Wrath was 100% put right here. Don't you try and claim what was nailed up here for a reason. Don't you try and pretend like Jesus was up here for nothing. If Jesus paid off the mortgage of your house, stop sending that check to the bank. All right? <laughs> that mortgage is paid off. You keep saying, well, I still feel bad. I'm going to keep sending it to the bank. The person who paid that off was saying, what are you doing? <laughs> paid a lot of money to pay off your house. You're not doing me any favors sending it to that bank. <laughs> what are you doing? It's for freedom that Christ died to set us free.
Amen. Let's go to the next one. This is the seventh. The cost of the cross. Because we make this central, sometimes it becomes so familiar that we forget the cost. There's a phrase out there called cheap grace, which means people forget the cost. And the response to a view of cheap grace is a cheap lifestyle. It cheapens the response that Jesus calls for those who truly believe in what he did for them. And that cost was willingly given three times in Luke. Jesus predicts he's going to go to the cross. He leans right into it. And in these words, it says that, he says, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. He gives it. No one can take from Jesus. He offers up his spirit. And the curtain that kept people from the most holy place in the temple was torn in half to show that access is being made to God. And it's no longer through the temple now. It's through the work of Jesus Christ. Through his blood. And I think we need to remember how much this costs. Because if we don't, and in chapter 2 later, as Luke goes from Luke into Acts, when he says, go, therefore, that is rooted in the cross and the costliness of it. Say, so you've been bought at a price. And when we have a view of cheap grace, when we hear the words of the Great Commission, now go. We don't. But when we view what Jesus did for what it was, for what it cost him, when we hear the words go, therefore, the heart responds with, absolutely. Anyone want that response in their heart this month? As we watch people to be baptized and to come out of that water to new life, to go therefore and live a new life, we as the church can respond and say, absolutely. Because we don't cheapen what happened here. Here's the last one I'll show you. This is a bonus for a prelude for next week. I'm going to call it the cliffhanger of the cross. So for those that are following along in chapter 23 of Luke, there's now a little bit of a break. We get some side details of what's going on. In the very end of the chapter, it says that people went home and they rested. The pace has slowed down here. This is a Good Friday sermon, in a sense, and often we want to skip right to Sunday, but we can't miss Saturday when people were, would pause and reflect, what does this mean? Not only are the, what is the implications of Jesus rising again, but what are the implications if he doesn't? In Luke 24, 
the disciples mention, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the Messiah. For them, God was dead. And I think we need to wrestle with that. He stays in the ground long enough to make everybody really reflect and not take it for granted. As we think about the Rocky Balboa illustration a couple weeks ago, it's as if Jesus stays down after taking the hit we deserved. He stays down for one and two and three to make us pause and reflect, to remember that was our hit to take. And now we can rejoice that there is now therefore no condemnation. We can rejoice that Jesus has provided victory over all evil, for over all sin, and for over all death. I like the response of the Israelites after Passover day. They get to the other side of the sea, the debt is paid, the chains are gone, and you remember back in the fall what we sang? The song at the sea, he has triumphed gloriously. The Hebrew phrase was simply, gaha, gaha. With that, I invite the worship team to come up as we sing about the victory of Jesus. May it always be central to our hearts. May that we lay no other foundation than the foundation of Christ crucified.